0: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am Steve Hausman. I'm an assistant professor of history at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota, and I'm your host for today's interview. And I'm excited today to welcome Ryan Hall to the podcast. Dr. Hall is an assistant professor of history and Native American studies at Colgate University in Hamilton, New York, and we'll be discussing his newest book, Beneath the Backbone of the World, Blackfoot People and the North American Borderlands 1720 to 1877, which came out with the University of North Carolina Press in 2020 as part of their David J. Weber series in the New Borderlands History. Welcome to the New Books Network, Ryan. Good to have you here.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm happy to be here.
0: Why don't we begin by just hearing a little bit about yourself. Can you tell us a bit about your background and specifically how you became interested in history?
1: Sure. Um so i guess i'll tell you how i became interested in uh native american history in particular um i'm not uh, a native person Um, i'm the descendant of uh, mostly farmers and railroad workers in the uh upper midwest um i grew up in iowa and um growing up i just had Pretty much no exposure to indigenous people, indigenous cultures, indigenous um, existence, really. Um, Besides, you know, a couple of projects of, you know, making things in elementary school, it's really, there was just nothing. I always tell people that uh, Iowa is the most colonized place in North America, I I really think it is. So I had no, I knew nothing about it. And uh, through circumstance, I ended up going to college uh, in Oklahoma, the University of Oklahoma. And I just sort of had this kind of realization or or personal awakening there, because there were indigenous people and reservations and nations and um, just culture everywhere in Oklahoma. And I was just, shocked by that and and then i was shocked like i was kind of surprised or troubled that i was so shocked by that um you know so I, I encountered you know there's a lot of native people on campus Native american studies classes which i i was really intrigued by but also just you know i play basketball a lot you know there were always native guys out uh on the court i was playing basketball with i also worked um, as a, a line cook uh, at Applebee's in Norman, Oklahoma. And um, most of the guys working in the kitchen with me were, were native. Um, some Ponca guys there, there's a Pawnee guy who worked the grill with me. Um, and I just remember thinking, why don't I know more about Native American people? Why, why do I know so little about this? Um, I remember feeling kind of, um, embarrassed at many times having conversations with Native people, um, kind of ashamed about it. Um, so that's, that's when I kind of um, got interested in Native American history and started taking more Native American history courses. And um, I was very fortunate, you know, to get into graduate school and um, my advisor in graduate school is Ned Blackhawk, um, who's uh, Western Shoshone. And um, yeah, so it really began as a sort of personal realization and then uh, which, which became an intellectual and professional commitment that's, that's driven me forward that people should know about Native American history. People shouldn't grow up and um, go to college and, and be Americans without knowing Native American history. So that's, that's how I see my role.
0: Yeah, it sounds like in, in a lot of ways, you see yourself as someone who is trying to make sure that, you know, people don't have the same experience that you did, kind of, uh, you know, realizing later in life that, oh, there's, there's a whole history here. And that's a, a story that I can relate very much to myself as, as well. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So what about the topic of this book in particular? What drew you to these people in this particular part of the world at this particular span of time?
1: Yeah, uh, I I always tell my students that you know every place has an indigenous history. Um, that's just something fundamental about living in a settler society. Um, I have them do projects actually writing the indigenous history of their hometown, which I always find really fascinating. Um, I was so it wasn't so much that you know I I. I I just, I was fascinated by native American history and wanting to do native American history. As far as the place, I just was drawn on some sort of visceral level to, to Montana, really. Um, I, I can't really explain it, but, uh, I'm sure many of the listeners of this podcast will understand it. You know, there's just something about the American West and, and these places. And so, um, I just started reading up about Montana and the indigenous history of montana and wanting to know more about it and as i was reading it i you know books about you know starting with like lewis and clark that sort of historiography and you know Blackfoot, Blackfeet, just kept showing up everywhere uh in in these readings and in these histories but always on this sort of shadowy peripheral level um they're kind of there but they're never the center of the story Uh, I think my, my advisor told me once he thinks the Blackfoot are maybe the most omnipresent yet, that yet least understood indigenous nation in Western history, um, which I think holds true. Um, and there are various reasons for that. Uh, part of it is that it's a a transnational story that people have had a lot of trouble wrapping their hands around or wrapping their heads around. it's been kind of segmented between Canadians and Americans over time. Um, but I just realized that there was a lot more to be said and, um, to be researched, um, about the Blackfoot experience. So I was, so that's, that's how I got into doing Blackfoot history. Um, the second part of your question is, you know, the, the time period, which was kind of a separate realization for me. Um, You know, when I went to graduate school, it was right around the time that there is this like fluorescence of scholarship about early Western history or early Native American history in the West, like the 17th, the 18th century, this time period when settler colonialism hasn't really happened in the West, at least the Trans-Missouri West. But colonial changes are unfolding in a huge, huge way. Um, Horses, environmental change, technological change, trade, um, disease, all of these things. Um, And creating this incredibly tumultuous historical, um, uh, historical era, I guess, Um, just throwing everything into disarray politically um, environmentally, socially, geographically, religiously in some ways. Um, so there's just this high, high drama in the early West where colonialism has impacted native people, but settlement hasn't happened yet. And, but when I was going to graduate school, there, there was a sort of handful of big books that came out right around then that I think dealt with that question. Um, Kathleen Duval's the native ground, um. Juliana Barr's Peace Came in the Form of a Woman, uh Ned Blackhawk's Violence Over the Land, uh Pekkahama The Comanche Empire, of course, Brian DeLay's War of a Thousand Deserts. There's just a lot of really, really fascinating work there that just captured my imagination. Um and my maybe a better my historical, uh historical interest maybe is a better way to put it. Um, that there's just there's this huge drama and major historical change happening, but it's happening like right off camera uh, as far as American history goes. you know, Our gaze as Americans and as historians of North America is so focused, whether we admit it or not, so focused on settler society and the margins of settler society um, that we were just m- missing for so long that there was major historical change happening everywhere on the continent um, over the last three, four hundred years. Um, so, eighteenth, early nineteenth century, I think, is like a vital period that still we're just scratching the surface historically um, of our understanding of that period. So, yeah, I was drawn to the Blackfoot, and I was drawn to this time period. So that's that's where the book came from. It's that
0: idea, that idea of of vast early America, right? That you know, if we if we oh, stop yeah. just if we if we stop focusing on the East Coast as like you know where the big events are happening in the, the centuries that you're talking about, then our understanding of the past only gets gets richer and deeper.
1: Oh, absolutely! Yeah, very well put. And that reminds me more people I should mention. You know, Claudia <laughs> um book uh, and his article "Go West" is just fantastic um, for describing these. These phenomena, mm-hmm. Colin Calloway's "One Best Winter Count." Mm-hmm. Now, America's way bigger than than what we describe as American history. I guess that's the idea. Exactly.
0: So let's go into some of this 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 deep, uh, ancient past. Mm-hmm. Tell us about the deeper history of of the Blackfoot people. What is their 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 ancient history, and how do they narrate and describe their own origin as a people?
1: Yeah, I'll be, I'll begin um, the. So this is um, kind of it's history and it's also religion, you know, and and it's it's deep uh, belief systems in the Blackfoot. And I'm not I'm not here as an authoritative voice on what the Blackfoot believe and Blackfoot religion and Blackfoot origins. But I can say what one of the stories that I've read is um, it all begins with this kind of trickster creator figure known as Napi, which is uh, old man in Blackfoot. He's kind of a secondary creator. Uh, the creator son created Napi in the world and then he created beyond that. Um, the story begins with Napi. He's the world has been inundated in a flood and he's on this this island surrounded by alone, surrounded by these animals of the world. And he wants to know what's under the water. And so he starts sending these animal companions or peers, one by one, asking them to go to dive into the water and see what's there. And one by one, they, they drown and they float to the surface until finally the duck goes down and floats back up and has drowned, but in its feet, its webbed feet is soil this mud and he takes that mud and he blows into it and he creates a a ball out of that mud and it grows and grows and it's a beautiful life and it displaces the water and it becomes the earth and what follows is this primordial period of napi old man and uh kipitaki i believe is uh, her name which is old woman traveling the land and creating and learning and understanding the world and, um, I, and, and and from that, uh, human beings are created and human beings are divided and um, eventually not being Kipitaki, leave the landscape, probably go up into the mountains. That's at least my understanding, my reading of one of these stories. Like I said, I'm not um, a blackfoot person and I don't understand the nuances and the richness of their religion. I, I can't. Um, but that story, the two things that really stick out to me that I find really important as an, you know, a historian thinking about this, this past is number one, Blackfoot history is firmly rooted in exactly where they are now and exactly where they are in the book, which is the Northwest Plains, that's where this all happened. Um, So it's, it's not a migration story. It's, it's not a story of peopling a, a place from somewhere else. They are firmly rooted where they are. And also this, this period of not be you know, moving across the land and imbuing it with meaning is, is written on the landscape. Uh, so if you travel Southern Alberta and Northern Montana, there's all these places that where Napi was, um, these, uh, like the Okotok, uh, which is a suburb of Calgary, but it's named for this giant split boulder that's named for a story, um, a Nopi story. And it imbues the landscape with meaning and a reminder that this is where the Blackfoot are from, and this is where they've always been from. So that's that's the story as I've read it and as I understand it. Uh, the, the ancient past, you know, according to archaeology, um, it is also very ancient. The The thing about the Blackfoot, they are, as far as connection to a particular place, they are among the most ancient people in North America. They have been exactly where they are in the Northwest Plains for minimum of a thousand years, according to archaeological scholarship, and probably much longer than that. Um, so really, time beyond memory as far as understanding the human past goes. The Blackfoot have been there for a very, very long time. And for all intents and purposes of human memory, they've been there forever. Um, so, yeah, um, it's a it's an ancient place. It's an ancient culture and it's an ancient landscape, which I try and um, communicate in the book. And it's something that I realized more and more as I was doing my research is what an old old place this is um, and what a venerable culture this is.
0: I think you absolutely communicated that in, in the book, in the the early chapters about how how much deep history this place has. And I'm wondering mm-hmm. if you could tell you. us a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about this ancient place, this, this kind of uh, 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 very old landscape. What is the environment like on the Blackfoot homelands? What is this place like? And how did the Blackfoot people make their lives in this place historically?
1: The Northwest Plains are... I'll start by saying this isn't an environmental thing, but they are just the most beautiful place on earth. It It is, it's the place, it's the Northwestern Great Plains. It's where the prairies or the Great Plains, as we say in the United States, uh, run into the Rocky Mountains. It's this incredibly dramatic landscape where these, these high undulating grasslands um, abruptly Become the Rocky Mountains, the Front Range of the Rocky Mountains. Um, and it's very dramatic. These this, these dramatic peaks are, you know, the most iconic national parks in Canada: Banff, Waterton Lakes, Glacier National Park in the United States. That's Blackfoot. That's the edge of Blackfoot Country. Um, so, it's where the prairies meet the mountains. It's um, it's a place that. Another thing that i learned while writing this book is it's a place that seems very beautiful, but very desolate to outsiders. It's big. It's, um, it looks very empty. It's, it's dry. It's incredibly cold in the winters at times. It's, um, it can be incredibly hot in the summers, uh, the winds, the Chinooks. I mean, it's, it's a dramatic landscape that outsiders have always, seen and described as harsh and not terribly livable, but that's merely a function of people's lack of understanding of the place Um, to the Blackfoot. This was always a place of, I think I say in the book, it's a place of plenty. Um, Blackfoot people created a stable and lasting way of life there for a very long time. Um, by understanding the landscape so it's a place with lots of of wild game especially bison enormous bison herds blackfoot people uh, this is this is a place where some of the biggest and oldest buffalo jumps in america or in north america are including um, head smash damage which is the biggest buffalo jump and oldest buffalo jump on earth uh, a buffalo jump for those who don't know it's like a it's like a cliff where indigenous people would run, would basically fool bison herds into running off of a cliff. And that way they could kill many bison at once, which is really necessary because you, you can't really kill many bison on foot before horses come, um, using bows, bow and arrows. So you have to be, you have to find ways to use the landscape to hunt. So by being able to use the landscape to hunt bison, they were able to, um, Create all this meat and um, and fat and and dried meat and, and jerky to survive the year. The literally the roofs above their heads on in their teepees were were bison hides. Um, but another thing that people don't understand about the Great Plains is, or a misconception about the Great Plains is that uh, people just lived exclusively on bison and that they used every part of the bison and that was that was that. Um, that's, that's not possible. You can't only eat bison. Um, you need to supplement it with, uh, fruits and vegetables and other sorts of food, which the Blackfoot did. Uh, there are dozens of different plants, uh, prairie turnips, other types of roots, berries that Blackfoot women had extensive knowledge of. Ethnobotany of the Northwest plains is incredibly rich. Actually, it's really interesting subfield that is kind of a, a rabbit hole um but i guess what i'm saying here is is blackfoot people found um found bounty in this place because they they knew where to look because they've been there so long and you know what is the great american desert to to outsiders is actually an incredibly vibrant and robust and um bountiful place to the blackfoot Uh, the only other the other thing i'll say about this place is it's often portrayed also as, um, you know, dry, uh, you know, just as, as sort of plains and sort of de- defined by its aridity and lack of water. That's the, the, the Great Plains, especially this corner of the Great Plains, there are these big rivers that come out of the mountains that carve these deep valleys through, through the plains. Um, and they kind of bookend Blackfoot country, but they also go through Blackfoot country so in the south, the big one is the Missouri which Missouri River, which is the big wa- major watershed of the American Northwest and the thoroughfare for the American fur trade. And then you go north and the northern border of their territory is the Saskatchewan, the North Saskatchewan River, which is the big watershed of the Canadian West and also the thoroughfare for um, Canadian travelers. So these river valleys became... Well, it's where Blackfoot people lived half the year, so um, they're really River Valley people in a lot of ways, as much as they are Plains people, Um, and they also introduce all these possibilities for trade later on, so I could keep going. (laughs) I find the landscape really (laughs) fascinating.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk, you mentioned trade, and you've been talking a little bit about about furs, and this ties into sort of a physical or non-human environment uh, in that regard as well, but Thinking about environments, what was the political environment of this place like about uh, 300 years ago in the early 18th century when your book, when the the narrative of your book really uh, begins? Who are the major players? What are the interactions between the various parties like? And in particular, tell us about the importance of furs from the 18th century onward.
1: The Northwest Plains around the... So... Before the 17, this, like you say, the early, about exactly 300 years ago, about the 1720s is the beginning of a time of momentous change. So before this, it's hard to say, it seems that the Northwest Plains were pretty stable, especially compared to what occurred later. Um, certainly Blackfoot presence in their homelands was, was stable. Um, this all starts to change, and their relationships with their neighbors start to change during the seventeen twenties, seventeen thirties, when two big changes start to happen, and there are these these colonial changes, and they're kind of this these uh, these sort of rippling like the ripples across the pond from colonization happening happening elsewhere in the continent. First thing that happens, or we don't know if it's the first thing that they happen at the same time. But the first thing I'll talk about isn't that is in the is horses make their way to Blackfoot country around the 1720s. Uh, those make their way north from New Mexico following the Pueblo revolt of 1680. They make they're, they're traded and taken and given, uh, between different indigenous groups along the front range and then in within the Great Basin and they make their way to the, to the Blackfoot by the 1720s and uh, almost the exact same time, just by historical circumstance and sort of geographic, I guess, coincidence, uh, European manufactured goods start to arrive in Blackfoot communities through indigenous trade. And those are coming from a completely different direction. Those are coming from Hudson Bay, which is to the the northeast of the Blackfoot. So the kind of, coming from completely different directions and kind of converging in Blackfoot country. And what happens is just a huge um, upending of, what, of, of relationships and of life in the region. At least that's what I argue. Um, and the, the Blackfoot are kind of put in this position of having to adapt in pretty profound ways uh, for the next several generations. First, so speaking of other major players, the Shoshone, uh, specifically the Eastern Shoshone, they are to the the south and west of the Blackfoot. And so they have access to horses many years before the Blackfoot have access to horses, especially since they have close ties farther south to Ute people who have direct ties to um, New Mexico where the horses are coming from. So the Shoshones have horses, a lot of horses pretty early on, There's a lot of evidence to suggest the Shoshone expand really rapid use horses um, and the huge military advantages of horses to expand really aggressively into what is now Montana uh, around the 1730s, 1740s. Well, 1710s, 20s, 30s, um, really putting the Blackfoot on their heels um, and really on the defensive during that period until they can get their own. Um, what really turns the tide there, and there are differing opinions whether the Shoshone actually some some people have argued the Shoshone expanded all the way well into Alberta uh, and were and basically conquered all of western Montana during this period. I don't know if it's quite that, but the Shoshones were really the the, the power in the region for a while there. Uh, what changes things is number one the Blackfoot are able to get horses learn how to use horses, start building their own horse herds. Um, But what they have that the Shoshone's don't is access to these trade goods because the Shoshone's, like I said, they're off to the South and to the West. They're, they're not, they don't have access to these trade networks in Canada that are linking the Blackfoot to Hudson Bay and all this British stuff going on there. Um, So the Blackfoot get guns, they get um, perhaps more, even more importantly, metal, metal tools and um, like iron to create arrowheads that will puncture leather and can be used again and again, which is a huge deal. So the Blackfoot within a couple decades are able to not only have horses, but also have these other military technologies. And they, they go from being kind of on their heels to becoming this ascendant uh, power in the region and once again. And, and by the, the end of the 18th century, they're, they're approaching, um, well, they're, they're the, the major, major power on the Northwest Plains. So that's what's happening in the 18th century. And like I said, this is the sort of history that's happening. We're piecing together. It's, it's, this is high drama, you know, there's these huge chunks of what is now Canada and the United States that are being conquered and reconquered. And, and these technologies and transformative technologies are changing societies. We have so little understanding or we have had so, so little understanding of all of this. Um, it's, it's kind of amazing if you think about it.
0: And one of the definitional terms that you use in talking about this part of North America in the book, and it's it's right there in the title, is that you you call this region a Mm. borderland. Um, What do you mean by a borderland? For those who might not be familiar with with the term, with historiography, what is a borderland? And how is this region in particular an embodiment of that concept?
1: A borderland, um, you know, today we would use borderland as you know, any region surrounding a border, you know, um, so that the term kind of changes over time. Historically, the, the, the definition that i found really captivating, and it's one of these historical sources I read, I'm like, oh, that explains my history perfectly, um, is, uh, it was an article by professors, um, St- Stephen Aaron and Jeffrey Edelman, um, about 25 years ago, I think from, from borderlands, to borders, and they define borderlands as the contested space between colonial domains. So basically, you know, you have colonial domains, usually European. So you have different European colonizers. You say you have the French, the French empire in, um, what is now, you know, Canada. And then you have, um, in Eastern Canada, and then you have, say, the British in New England, and then there's this whole fuzzy area in between those colonial domains. Fuzzy as far as like the European maps go. That's the borderland, that's the area in between. Um, that's actually where I am right now, in upstate New York. That's This is the heart of Haudenosaunee uh, territory. And the colonization of upstate New York happened about 150 years later than The colonization of New England because uh, in a borderland indigenous people have enormous um, power and leverage if they're able to wield it Um, because they're in between they're able to play one side against the other there. It's kind of this Imperial no man's land. They're also always able to threaten to join one side or join the other side or to trade with one side against the other side. it's these fuzzy contingent spaces where third parties, but basically indigenous people usually are able to, to wield power. And I've, you know, historians bicker about whether that's the right definition or if it applies everywhere. It applies to my work in a huge way. I, I find that idea super, super useful and super, super um, captivating. Um, because that's exactly what Blackfoot country becomes, it becomes this area in between. Like I said, the Northern border of, of Blackfoot country is the North Saskatchewan. That's where these British and French Canadian traders are moving back and forth and expanding into the West. So that's, that's in the North and then in the South, uh, is the Missouri where Americans beginning with Lewis and Clark, that is the thoroughfare into the West. And that's where the fur trade really happens um in the north american west so this ancient place that has its own long history and own rhythm some, some suddenly becomes a borderland and the blackfoot are put in this position and they know it and that's something i argue in the book they know it they understand it they manipulate it they create it in some ways um they're able to gain enormous leverage from this And that leverage allows them to maintain their own um, power, sanctity, economic power, you could even say sovereignty, um, for a very long time.
0: And as we've been indicating, as we've been talking about, the 18th century is a period of great... Change and upheaval across North America. No matter where you look, things are things are 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 shifting politically and environmentally and economically. And among those changes, of course, uh-huh. is the creation of a new state, um, a new nation, a new kind of player on on on, in, on the North American continent. In the United States, can you uh-huh. talk a little bit about? The implications of the American Revolution in Blackfoot country as the U.S. begins to encroach upon Native land across North America from the late 18th century onward, the Blackfoot people, as you say in the book, are able to maintain power. Uh, well mm-hmm. into the 19th century, kind of subverting the too often told narrative of, you know, the United States just marching its way across the continent and, you know, yeah. conquering land as it goes. That's, that that doesn't really fit the, the story that you tell here. So can you talk a bit about American and Blackfoot relations uh, during the, the sort of late 18th into the early 19th century?
1: Absolutely. I mean, it really begins um... – with With Lewis and Clark, you know, this great starting point for for American Western history. That's definitely true with the Blackfoot. You know, Lewis and Clark, excuse me, they travel, you know how many thousands of miles, many thousands of miles. Um, to the Pacific and back, they meet with uh, like fifty indigenous nations, something like that. The only time, there's a, a violent, the only time there's bloodshed on the trip is with the Blackfoot um, at the two medicine fight in 1806 between Mer- when Meriwether Lewis um, and three other men who kind of do this, are, are sort of checking out break off from the rest of the expedition to check out the Marias River near what is now Glacier National Park. They come upon some Blackfoot people and uh, a a fight breaks out and they end up killing two of these Blackfoot teenagers. Um, And that's really the, that's the dismal starting point uh, for American history in Blackfoot countries, the killing of these two teenagers um, in 1806. It's probably on the Blackfeet reservation is where that happened actually, um, near Browning. You know, uh, Lewis and Clark, they're they're always portrayed as like these pathfinders and they were wildly successful in a lot of ways. Um they were well, I'll say two things. Number one, they were wildly successful with most indigenous groups because Blackfoot people had been systematically denying um European trade goods to the peoples of the Pacific Northwest for at least a quarter century. Um very deliberately. And so when Lewis and Clark show up to um, Shoshone communities, um, to Nez Perce communities, Salish communities, they, they are breaking this blockade that the Blackfoot have put on American or European trade for a generation, at least. Um, so they're, they're successful because of what the Blackfoot have done. <laughs> um, so you can't understand what's happening with Lewis and Clark without understanding, um, Blackfoot history you just fundamentally can't, um, they're, they, they're only successful because of the Blackfoot and how they're successful. Um, the other thing to understand about Lewis and Clark is, you know, they go up the Missouri river to its source and they encounter Chicago way um, community and she's able to arrange horses to go over one of these mountain passes and they make it to the Columbia and to the to the ocean um, that was that's an obvious route through the American Northwest uh, that's the obvious route to the Pacific for American traders and explorers in the early 19th century no one else is able to replicate what Lewis and Clark did for a full quarter century after Lewis and Clark, it is for a generation um, after Lewis and Clark. Anybody who tries to do what they did is turned back or completely destroyed um, by the Blackfoot. The Blackfoot know exactly what the Americans represent. They represent um, a weakening of Blackfoot control over their neighbors, a weakening of Blackfoot supremacy over their neighbors, like the Shoshone that I talked about earlier, um, they are an existential threat to to the Blackfoot. As to the Blackfoot, I argue, um, kind of blockaded Mon- Montana. This huge, the upper six, seven hundred miles of the the Missouri River were just no American could go there, and it wasn't until 1831 when the Blackfoot, for reasons that I can get into, decided that they wanted Americans there, that Americans were able to, do, to go back up to the sources of the Missouri and establish a permanent presence. So Montana only really existed, at least the colonization, American colonization of the Northwest only really unfolded um, according to uh, what the Blackfoot wanted to happen Um, And the routes to the, to the Northwest, the Pacific Northwest ended up having to go way out of the way to avoid Montana, to avoid Blackfoot country, um, to go over uh, instead, uh, South Pass um, in Wyoming, um, which is incredibly desolate and dangerous place to travel. But it's, it's, it was better than going through Blackfoot country. So you can't really understand what the the American experience, the early American experience in the Northwest without really putting it in the context of Blackfoot history, not the other way around.
0: And again, as we were kind of talking about before, it, it this reminds me of a lot of the scholarship that's come out recently about, um, you know, rethinking this idea of manifest destiny, right? That, that you know, as mm. that this is, is not just some simple story and people knew at the time that that was not the, the way that history was unfolding either. And the, the story that you tell here is just another perfect example of that argument.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely, yeah
0: so as you mentioned a moment ago this begins to change in the 1830s into the 1840s so what changes are happening that lead to the 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 door to this part of what is today montana opening up what role do things like disease and uh bison herds play in finally allowing american access in piercing these northern borderlands
1: well, as far as allowing American access, I argue that's a separate story. Um, the Blackfoot, um, the first European, or American rather, um, out permanent outposts in Montana and beginning in 1831 were um, allowed and negotiated by Blackfoot people because they needed um, a counterpoint uh, or they needed another trade partner to get leverage with the Hudson Bay company in Canada because in Canada, there had been a big merger of trade companies in 1821 that meant that indigenous people couldn't play different traders against each other for higher prices anymore. There's, this is the, the creation of the Hudson Bay company monopoly. So up in their north, they suddenly there's only one fur trading company and they have no leverage and they're getting offered half as much in return for, for furs that they used to. So they say, hey, what about those Americans that we've been fighting for the last quarter century? Maybe maybe there's an opportunity there. Um, and they, uh, they end up managing um, and in some ways inviting American um, in a limited way, Americans to establish a trading post in Montana, so that's that's how Americans get there. As far as, um, so Americans entering Montana was not a function of Blackfoot decline or Blackfoot weakness in any way. It was actually a function of Blackfoot strength um, and, and Blackfoot um, strategy. Uh, yeah, I never thought of it in those terms, <laughs> but yeah, your question made me think of it. Yeah. Um, as far as what starts to change, it's after that. So 18, 1830s, this is the Blackfoot invite the Americans in in 1831. There, things haven't really started to change in a major way yet. What happens is in 1837, and one could argue this is an unintended, unintended consequence of the Americans allowing Americans in, is uh, smallpox arrives um, on American uh through American traders in 1837 and, um, absolutely just wreaks havoc. There hasn't been an outpo- a smallpox outbreak in the region for 56 years, which means that it's, um, nobody, almost nobody in Blackfoot communities have any immunity to it. None of them have been inoculated. Um, so much as two thirds, the Blackfoot population is destroyed in 1837 uh which is unimaginable i mean i can't begin to imagine it's one thing to read it on the page you know but i i just can't imagine two-thirds of a population dying so that happens in 1837 by the 18 then there's another set of changes really by the 1850s uh you start to get um Bison herds start to slowly and then quickly decline. Um, there are more illnesses that, that come upriver and they're pretty much all coming by the Americans, I'm not sure why, um, but you know there are measles outbreaks, things like that, that also decimate Blackfoot people. Um, there's a de- general decline in the fur, tra- fur trade um during the by the 1850s and the 1860s there's just a lot of things that are happening here um and then the big change i would say like the the biggest thing that happens is the the change that happens pretty much everywhere is the shift from a a sort of fur trade economies like an extract we call like an extractive colonialism Of the fur trade, which is you know a few people at a time at these isolated outposts trading and leaving. That's you know that's there's the experience Blackfoot people had with outsiders for a century. But what starts to happen, especially in 1862, there's a gold rush in Montana. Um, also almost the exact same time steamboats start to, uh, make their way into Montana. So there's much more upriver traffic. People start to come and stay and they're not coming to trade. They're coming to, to make lives and to, to take up chunks of land in Montana. Um, so yeah, there's disease, there's environmental change, there's economic change, and then there's settler colonialism and all these things to start to build. And there's this sort of crescendo uh, or dismal crescendo that, that starts to take place in the 1860s.
0: Yeah, you really paint a picture of the mid 19th century as this era of overlapping crises uh among the blackfoot people and you know it's what any one of those crises would be enough Mm. to uh to to try to navigate on its own but all of them happening at the same time reaching as you put it just a second ago really well this kind of dismal crescendo in the 1860s it's uh it's 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 i would never say it's too much to handle but it 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 Mm. changes things in extremely in really radical ways and that crescendo, as you put it, the story of American invasion—it comes to a, a, a truly horrific culmination in 1870. So, can you narrate a little bit of how we get to this moment of tragedy, what becomes known as the Marias Massacre, and what the implications of this moment are?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's difficult history, you know. It's it's it's, and that's for me as an outsider. It's it's really hard hard stuff. Um, So by the 1860s, there's this, um, you know, there's the Montana gold rush and there's more and more people are coming to to mine gold, but then some of them are staying, they're they're building ranches or they're just, they're, they're erecting uh, saloons and making little towns like Helena or Virginia City or Fort Benton in Montana. Um, A few things happened. So during the civil war, um, actually, I have an article coming out about this next month in the uh, uh, Journal of the Civil War era, if anybody wants to know more about this. But during the Civil War, things just really get unsettled um, in, on the upper Missouri. We, we,
0: we, we call that a teaser in, in the biz.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's my first teaser. Um, the... Uh, well, the fur trade economy really collapses during the Civil War, at least in this is mostly the southern part of Blackfoot territory uh, where things really start to fall apart. What is now Montana? So the fur trade economy just completely collapses because of several reasons, but mostly there's no place to sell furs. The port of New Orleans is blockaded for a while. There's all this political intrigue in St. Louis. Um, the the major families of the fur trade are seen as southern sympathizers, and they're basically like... dis uh like disempowered by republican uh appointees anyway the fur trade falls apart uh the us government completely ignores indian affairs and they they start to completely ignore this treaty that they made with the blackfeet in 1855 so they just the the structures that had been put in place through this treaty that i talk about in the book in 1855 to try and manage this transition uh towards more settlement in the region Um, the United States just completely abandons that, um, and abandons all their promises to the Blackfoot. Um, and the things just get really nasty and it's not a big, it's a lot of sort of, as far as the violence goes, it's many small things that start to, to add up. Uh, it's a sort of toxic environment that creates many small, small moments of violence, comparatively small, that leads to this um massacre. So like I said Fort Benton is really the heart of a lot of this. It's this kind of nasty little river town where there's a bunch of uh, that used to be a fur trade post and there's a lot of saloons there, a lot of young men avoiding the war who are there and um there starts to be killings of Blackfoot people and revenge killings of um white people. Um basically really nasty murders and lynchings. They create a a climate of toxicity and vengeance in Western Montana. The real turning point, some people call it a a war, the Blackfoot War. Maybe it's more just a a climate of of violence and murder and mayhem that's unchecked, but not really a war. Um, What happens is in 1869, um, there's this sort of scion of early Montana society. His name's Malcolm Clark. He's one of the founding founding fathers of Montana. He has this ranch just north of Helena. And um, he has this long-running feud with a Piccani man named Owlchild. It's not entirely clear what was the cause of it, but um, Owlchild and a few other young Blackfoot men come to Malcolm Clark's ranch one night and murder him. And they uh, in front of his family, and it's it's a very dramatic scene that's been replayed many times in Montana history books. And um, anyway, it causes just a, a huge uproar, and it was really a personal thing between Owl Child and Malcolm Clark. Um, all documents suggest, but it becomes this cause celebre and in, um, in Helena among Montanans that enough is enough. This is the time. This is the, you know, something needs to be done. So, um, long story short, the U S army is, um, sent, you know, sent out there to find owl child, find whoever is harboring owl child and bring them to justice. Um, and what they end up doing is instead of going to where owl child probably is, which is probably Mountain Chief's winter camp. Um, there, there are many bands, Blackfoot bands, that camp separately for the winter. He's in one community, probably. They end up just going to a completely different community that had nothing to do with it, and was led by a a chief that was very committed to diplomacy. His name was Heavy Runner or Tail Feathers, coming over the hill, and. He was committed to diplomacy. He had never or his people had ever committed any violence towards Americans. But for reasons that aren't entirely clear, probably convenience um, or maybe just misunderstanding, uh, that's the camp that these soldiers came upon it was heavy runners camp and is the dead of winter. Uh, smallpox was rat was had returned to Montana is ravaging this community. and. You know, the, the, they're encamped in the Marias River in northern Montana, and these soldiers show up and Heavy Runner comes out with these papers and this medal attesting that he's a peaceful, that, that he has not engaged in any violence towards Americans, and he's attempted diplomacy. And the, the troops, led by this guy named Eugene Baker, who was probably drunk at the time, um, slaughtered almost all of them, you know, about 200 people um and uh the implications i mean it's it's horrifying i mean what a how much it's horrifying to blackfoot people it's it's stifling a lot of blackfoot survivors end up going over to the canadian side of the border for safety some never return to montana uh, and others are more and more um sort of forced to stay around their agency what becomes their reservation um, for fear of the US Army um, so yeah it's it's a really difficult moment in, in Blackfoot history
0: and often uh, in American culture or in older American uh, historiography and even today when people you know, sort of unthinkingly talk about Mm -hmm. this sort of history. This will often be an an ending point in the story, right? That there's this horrible moment of massacre, and that's the end of of the true narrative. And anything that comes after that, you know, is, is sort of an afterthought. But as you... Rightfully, of course, indicated in the book, this is not the end of the story. It's a shattering moment. It's it's a it's a, a horrible yeah. moment and, and and a sad moment, of course. But this isn't the end of the story. So, can you describe a, a bit of Blackfoot history in the years and the decades to come after this massacre? Because, as you say in the book, you know these are people who are able to maintain their life in their own homelands. They're able to, to, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, resist and survive even, you know, facing down these very strong headwinds of American colonialism in the late 19th into the 20th century.
1: I think that's very well put. Uh, the I think of, um, I was really impressed and, and moved by, this book came out a few years ago by an Ojibwe scholar named David Troyer called The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee. And it's a he, great book. Yeah. 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 He's really wonderful. Um, he, you know, he made the point that, you know, American history, Native American history, especially since Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee came out and what was it? 1969, um, has really loved ending Native American history with these massacres, with these incredibly sad, bleak, as you say, shattering moments in the late 19th century. And then we, You know, the history, the textbook moves on and and talks about other people. And that's kind of the end of the story, Um, which is narratively convenient, but historically and morally wrong. Um, Native American people have survived and persevered and and in some ways rebuilt their societies and, and prospered in different ways, despite all of this, which is. Um, really an, a, a profound thing if you think about it. So Blackfoot history, it really mirrors Native American history as a whole in that way. Uh, the late 19th century for the Blackfoot is incredibly difficult. It's really a low point for Native American people across the continent. The low point of population in the last 500 years was, you know, 1890, um, It's, they're confined to reservations, three reserves in Canada, one reservation in the United States. They, horrible health problems. There's a famine on the Blackfeet reservation in 1883 due to undelivered annuities. The generations of children are stolen and sent to boarding schools. Some never return. Uh, It's, it's harrowing. It's really, really harrowing stuff, um, but you know, Blackfoot people have. Sur- it, it sounds cheesy, or, or maybe not very um, specific, but they survived, um, and and they're still there. And and I find, I find it moving that you know there are vibrant, lasting, dynamic Blackfoot communities on this, in this homeland, you know, beneath the backbone of the world, as I call it, you know, within side of the mountains, which means you're in Blackfoot country. And they're still there. And um, I find that, I don't know, I, I personally find it very moving. You know, the other, the other story I often talk about with my students is, you know, the fight also, the fight against colonialism, the fight for sovereignty, the, the fight for existence and dignity also continued. Um, the, the person I talk about and think about a lot is, um, Eloise Cobell. She's, she was, um, Blackfeet, which means she's, um, South Pecani means she's from Montana. Um, she died, um, 2010, I believe. Extraordinary woman in 2009, um, Eloise Cobell, um, from the Blackfeet reservation, Grew up in a home without electricity. Um, she uh, led. She was the lead um, lead plaintiff on the biggest class action settlement, arguably uh, ever settled against the United States federal government uh, for three point four billion dollars uh, settlement for Native American people for misuse trust funds. This is called Cobell v. Salazar in two thousand nine, um, which is a, a huge, huge deal. In Indian country, um, and for Indigenous people, who created uh, massive scholarship funds and also it was restitution for misused Indian money. Um, she fought for decades for that. Just an extraordinary, extraordinary person. She also founded the Native American Bank, um, which now has branches on reservations throughout um, the United States West, but it began as the uh, Blackfeet National Bank in Browning, Montana which is also a huge, huge deal because Native American people historically on reservations ha- can't get access to credit because they can't put their property up for collateral because in the reservation, it's all trust property, um, which is a, a creates cycles of stru- It's a, a form of structural poverty on reservations. And she addressed that through, um, Native American financial institutions. So I'm going to kind of rant about Eloise Cobell, but I just, I find her, you know, when we talk about resistance and we talk about uh, vitality and um, ingenuity, which I think is maybe the, at the heart of my book is, it's a story of ingenuity. I mean, Eloise Cobell is extraordinary. It was an extraordinary, extraordinary person. So, you know, the story I ended, you know, uh, my piece of it that I write ends in 1877, but it really continues um, into the 21st century and it will continue, you know, way into the future.
0: And as we begin to wrap up here, um, you know, you may have just addressed this question a little bit a moment ago, but maybe you could put a bit of a finer point on it. I always like to ask my guests to imagine a reader of this book thinking back on on their experience with with the story that you tell five Ten or so years later, sometime in the future, looking back on this book, what do you hope their takeaway might be? If there's sort of one thing that they' that they remember from your book that they take away from your book, one lesson or or, or message, what what do you think that that would be? What might that be? Well, and historically, I, my, my guests complain that this is not an easy question. <laughs> so, you
1: know. <laughs> no, it's a good you, you, question. You, um, <laughs> but it is difficult. I think the two things, two things. So I'll, I'll, I'll cop out here and do two things instead of one. I think the first thing is what I, I, I just pointed to, which is, you know, resiliency and adaptability. That is, that is the heart of Native American history is resiliency and adaptability. It's been the guiding light of, you know, Native American history scholarship for the last 30, 40 years, really. Um, but that's because that's 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 the history. <laughs> that's, that's what we should understand. That's the fundamental colonial experience about indigenous people. Yes, there's destruction. Um, and yes, there's change. And it's really, really difficult but it's ultimately a story of resiliency um, and profound resiliency and adaptation to things that most of us today can't, especially those of us who aren't native like me or non-native people like myself, um, can't possibly understand. The other thing that I'll, I'll take away or that I would ask people to take away is the power of putting indigenous homelands at the heart of analysis, you know, writing what I tried to do in this book, maybe successfully, maybe not, but I really wanted to write the history of Blackfoot country, this place, the Northwest plains, which I described, you know, this place that the me the mountains, this ancient place that is a homeland to the Blackfoot. Um, I tried to tell it from that place, looking outward, um, and it, doing that opened up so many different ways of thinking about history and so many connections that I think are lost when indigenous history is placed at the, in opposition to or at the margins of national histories or imperial histories. We lose a lot with the Blackfeet uh, or Blackfoot. Um, the... You lose this this perspective this this geographic perspective of um, you know Canadian uh, what's happening in the north and what's happening in the south. Um, it's just really dynamic um, this history, and you can only understand it by putting Blackfoot country at the center. So I hope there are more books. And I'm I'm by no means the first to ever do this, but. I hope there are more books. I would love to see more books that are written as the history of an indigenous place and an indigenous homeland um, and and see the history from that perspective.
0: I think what you just articulated is a really good argument for uh, why people, especially non-Native people, should read and understand and learn about and take classes in uh native history or indigenous history you know globally more more broadly than just in north Mm -hmm. america as well that it it decenters the kind of narratives and the kind of stories and the understandings that you know we and i speak myself also as a non-native person you know think that we understand about the place that we currently call home i think that that your book is is a perfect embodiment of, of that kind of power
1: oh yeah absolutely yeah it's well put
0: and so my last question, uh, before before we, we wrap up here today is this book has been out for a couple years. It was it was a, 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 a one of the, the the kind of pandemic baby books, right? It came out in, in 2020. So <laughs> con, con, congratulations on on putting it out in the midst of of you know this this you know yeah I still in, haven't seen it un- like, un-
1: uh, at a conference or anything <laughs> yeah
0: yeah it's uh, it's 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 out there. So congratulations on putting it out during during such trying times. But since then, you know. I know historians, I'm a historian, we all have our, our fingers in uh, many different pies mm-hmm. at, at any given moment. So uh, what have you been working on in the interim? Well, can we get a preview of what you're working on next, working on right now?
1: I'm at the beginning of a of a new project and the very beginning, um, you know, the pandemic has made it really difficult to go to archives. Um, so I'm, I'm really chomping at the bit for the summer to begin so I can start going to these places. Um, I, I am interested in, Um, corruption in the Bureau of Indian affairs and the long history of corruption in Indian affairs administration in the United States. Uh, this is building on elements of the last chapter of, of this book, um, in which one of the Blackfeet's agents basically steals, uh, all the things that the government has shipped to the Blackfeet and the Blackfeet need. Um, and he steals it and he sells it to these gold miners. And it's one of the reasons that uh, there's this heightened animosity within um, among Blackfoot people during the late mid to late 1860s. Uh, I, you know, corruption is, is one of these things that, you know, you see it mentioned a lot in Native American history. And Native American people surely have known for, you know, we'll tell you, they've known forever how corrupt uh, Indian administration has historically been. Um, but there's very little been written on it. It's very hard to tell histories of corruption because um, the people writing our sources are usually the people um, engaged in the corruption. Um, just a step back, I'm really interested in is, you know, the westward expansion in the 19- century and the dispossession of indigenous people was really the heart the legal basis of it the foundational basis of it were these treaties these treaties with indigenous nations that created reservations and opened up dispossessed land and opened it up for settlement and part of the deal with these treaties um you know indigenous people a lot of the time signed these treaties Knowing that it was about it was going to change how they lived and they were kind of forced into this position. But the treaties were a way to um, kind of fuel or um, ease that transition to life on a reservation, because in treaties, There's always the land aspect of it. And that's what we always think about in in history is, you know, the land that's given up in a treaty and the reservation that's created, but treaties always have a monetary, like a physical component of goods or money. The government agrees to pay indigenous people, um, what are called annuities, annual payments of money or of goods to survive, to survive these early years on a reservation. Um, or agricultural goods, agricultural implements to learn how to farm in this specific place in this specific way, which indigenous people are, are ready to do. Um, and the way that it's administered is through this system of agents. These, these guys called named called Indian agents and every reservation has like one Indian agent and it's his job to disperse these goods every year. And there's so little, I'm just, it's shocking reading this stuff. There's almost no accountability for these guys. are there are these, they're these, little, these little Kings, um, out there on these, res- on these, on these agencies and they're in charge of everything. They're in charge and these annuities and you know, also medical care. Um, this is life and death, you know, they control everything for native people. And so many of them, they just. They just take it, they just take it and they sell it. Um, so I think there's a, there's a story there. And what does that mean for Native American history? What does it mean for administrative governance in American history? Um, you know, before the civil war, most of the administrative state in America was Indian affairs. Um, into the 19th century, the, there were times when the majority of the federal budget was Indian affairs. So this is the this is the administrative state in a lot of ways. What does it mean that the, the the foundation of the American administrative state is hopelessly corrupt? What does that mean for who we are as Americans and what role corruption plays in America? What does it mean for Native American history? what, is, um, what was the impact on Indigenous people and how did Indigenous people respond to this problem of their stolen livelihoods and these broken promises. Um, I think that's a story that we don't really understand yet. Um, so that, that's what's next for me.
0: We're recording this podcast via an audio-only medium, so you couldn't see me. But as you were uh, describing that new project, I was nodding uh, extremely vigorously the, the <laughs> entire time. I, uh, I'm, I'm thinking back to when I teach my uh, the the second half of the U.S. history survey when I'm talking about the the 1880s and especially the 1890s. I always have this mm-hmm. moment in the lecture notes that I use where I, I have this this line where I say you know and, and the Bureau of Indian Affairs was well known as the most corrupt segment of American government. And whenever I teach that, mm-hmm. in the back of my head, I'm always like, I wish I had a really good example, like a really good concrete yeah. example that I could tell these students about how and why that was the case beyond. I, I give some kind of vague general examples, but it sounds like your your book will be able to, just speaking solely personally as a teacher, that that's going to yeah. really help that, that particular part in that class. And more broadly, that sounds like an amazing project. I'm, I'm very excited to see where you take that.
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah, I kind of came at it from a similar perspective. You know, it's something that yeah. It's like we all kind of know it, mm-hmm. <laughs> and we all we all say it, um, and it's self evidently important. And then I look into it, and it's like, where's mm-hmm. where's our, where's the real depth of understanding there? Um, mm-hmm. who's, who's who's gone down this rabbit hole?
0: Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Dr. Ryan Hall is an assistant professor of history and Native American studies at Colgate University. And his new book is Beneath the Backbone of the World, Blackfoot People and the North American Borderlands, 1720 to 1877, which came out with the University of North Carolina Press in 2020. Thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast and talking with me about this fascinating book, Ryan. I very much appreciate it.
1: Well, thanks so much, Steve. This is a lot of fun. It was really nice talking to you.